Today, as we observe Martin Luther King Sunday, I am really here to issue you an invitation as individuals and collectively. The invitation is for you to consider in a thoughtful and careful way the idea of making reparations to the African-American people of the United States for the crimes of slavery and of slavery's aftermath, the era of Jim Crow and now of the new Jim Crow, mass incarceration. I call you particularly to thoughtfulness and carefulness because there has been a great deal written on this subject that is non-rational and uninformed. It is a difficult part of a very large and difficult subject, the history of and present status of race relations in the U.S. And it's important to say in all of this, and I'll say this again and again as this congregation addresses racial justice, that this isn't a subject where blame, shame, or guilt have any useful place. I urge you to let go of any sense of guilt or being blamed or shamed that you might have, as well as any sense of taking any of this personally. Because all of that guilt and blame and shame is energy manifest, and it's a waste of energy, not useful. So the issues I'm speaking of today are largely cultural, institutional, and systemic, and that's where the big focus needs to be. At the same time, cultures, institutions, and systems change only to the extent that the individuals who are part of them make them change. My hope is that after today, you might wish to consider as individuals and together as a religious community, taking some action towards systemic change regarding racism. Now, if addressing the issues of racism were easy, we would have addressed them as a nation long ago. I believe that. I believe the majority of people in this country are people of goodwill towards others. But addressing this issue is not easy, so it is important to try harder, to listen carefully and with open-mindedness on issues of race. So regarding reparations, I want to give the case for it. Why would we even consider such an idea? What is its basis and rationale? Secondly, I'll talk about what is meant by the concept of reparations. What kinds of compensation or rectification are being proposed and for whom? And finally, I want to suggest to you that making reparations to African Americans is an imperative for our country, and one that we are called to as Unitarian Universalists. I believe it is a necessity. So before I begin with all of that, I want to tell you why I care. You can see that as singer Weird Al Yankovic says of himself in his wonderful song, White and Nerdy, that I am whiter than sour cream. <laughs> mostly of English and Scottish ancestry, with a touch of the Netherlands in there too. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which has for decades been a majority African-American city. It was also the capital of the Confederacy. In my public high school, the final round of mandated federal busing for integration, school integration, took place my sophomore year. 
The result was that over the next year or so, most white students and teachers fled the system. Often to brand new white flight private schools started by, of course, churches. By the time I graduated, my high school was over 85% African American. Now this was the early 1970s. It was the era of black power and women's liberation and protest against the war in Vietnam, even in Richmond. So there was plenty of blaming and shaming flying around. Some of it aimed at me as a white kid in my school. And as a teenager, I resented this. Why should African-American students and teachers blame me and make assumptions about me based simply on the color of my skin? Why would they hold me responsible for stuff like slavery I had nothing to do with and happened a long time ago just because of the color of my skin? In defense of my having these thoughts, what can I say? I was 15 and really incredibly ignorant. The irony of my thoughts never crossed my mind. And this is a big aspect of white supremacy. Always being able to assume as a white person that I will be known, understood, and addressed individually, not as a part of some larger group. So these experiences of blame and, yes, demands for accountability left a deep impression on me, partly because I of what I believe was their unfairness. At the same time, uh, they disturbed me <coughs> in a way and also inspired me that before too long, I was seeking understanding. I wanted to understand why anyone would want to blame me over these issues of race. I wanted to understand the history and experiences of African-American people in the U.S. as best I could because it soon was obvious to me that that was the source of information I needed. So beginning in my late teens and early 20s, I started my own education on this. <coughs> and the more I learned and studied about the history of the African-American people in the U.S. and the history of slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration, the more I've witnessed overt and covert acts of racism, the more I've seen the effects of systemic racism in all our nation's systems, health care, policing courts and prisons, education, land and property, ownership, employment, and every other system I can think of, the more I have realized the extent to which I have benefited personally from my privilege as a white person, benefited from racism against African Americans. I have benefited from white supremacy. And as I have witnessed the effects of white supremacy everywhere, including in the Unitarian Universalist Association and in this congregation, the more I am convinced that the U.S. can never be the country that we want to be, what we claim to be but are not, without addressing this issue directly and totally. And I believe that making reparations to African-American people for the crime of slavery is necessary for our well-being as a nation. At the same time, I don't feel the least sense of guilt and shame for racism. As I told you, I think those emotions are a waste of time and energy in any situation. What I do feel is a sense of responsibility 
for learning and changing myself and for changing these systems of white supremacy. Not just because I'm white, but because the situation of race relations in this country is offensive to me, to my sense of decency, morality, and justice as a citizen, as a Unitarian Universalist, and as a minister. So when the talk is of reparations for slavery, what is meant? And let's look at that concept of slavery first. When those who support the idea of reparations use the word slavery, that's really shorthand for something bigger than slavery alone. So slavery in this case does not refer only to the time of slavery in the United States itself, which lasted 246 years from 1619 until 1865, but also to the 100 plus years of apartheid or segregation known as the Jim Crow era that followed the end of legal slavery. And it also includes reference to our current time of the mass incarceration of black men and women, largely for profit, that has taken place as a consequence of the so-called war on drugs. So when we say slavery, it is also a reference to the small and large aggressions and discrimination that are visited among African-American people in this country every single day. So, most importantly, when people who want reparations talk about slavery, the reference is not only to the actual conditions of slavery and segregation, but to their consequences. So the case for reparations, simply put, is that for over 400 years of slavery and its aftermath, continuing to now, African-American people have been and are subject to ongoing systemic violence, oppression, and exploitation perpetrated by the dominant white society. And the dominant society, in turn, has benefited without giving adequate compensation from the contributions of African-American labor and creativity to our nation. So this systemic violence and oppression and exploitation of African-American people has had and continues to have a direct and devastating effect on their lives. And this isn't only because of the direct pain and losses inflicted, but also because of the long-term consequences of being denied fair access and opportunities in the areas of education, law, housing, criminal justice, politics, employment, and health care. So the result has been huge and deep inequalities for African Americans. Inequalities regarding educational attainment, wealth and inheritance, health status, imprisonment, and employment. And adding insult to injury, African American people have been told consistently that it is their own inferiority of intelligence, of genetics, of initiative, and of morality that has caused their present day unequal status. So before continuing to discuss these consequences, I want to remind you briefly of some of the direct pain and losses inflicted by slavery in its aftermath. So African people were taken from their homes in Africa and brought to this country in conditions so horrible that half to two-thirds of them died on the way. Here, they were sold as property into servitude, 
not allowed to speak their languages, practice their religions, or engage in their other cultural traditions. They often were not allowed to marry or form and maintain families. Their children were taken from them to be put into slavery, often away from them. When the international slave trade was made illegal in 1807, African-American people were bred like livestock in the U.S. to ensure slavery's continuation. They were and are built, beaten, tortured, and killed without consequence. After slavery ended in the U.S. in 1865, African-Americans were denied civil rights and assimilation into the broader society. Racial segregation was created and enforced in all areas of public life, in voting, housing, health care, transportation, and all public spheres, institutions, and agencies. In the late 19th, continuing through the middle of the 20th century, at least 5,000 African-American men, women, and children were lynched in ways so savage and barbaric as to make the acts of ISIS look tame, including right here in Omaha, in front of laughing crowds. In hundreds of cases of lynching, souvenir photographic postcards of the lynchings were created and sent through the U.S. mail. White people sent them to their friends and relatives in celebration. Many thousands more black people were killed and imprisoned unjustly with the cooperation of the corrupt legal system, what may be called legal lynchings. Between 1898 and 1930, over 50 African-American communities were attacked and partially or completely destroyed. Thousands of African-Americans were killed and thousands of their homes and businesses were razed to the ground. I'm talking of Wilmington, North Carolina in 1898, Greenwood, Oklahoma in 1921, as we heard, and Rosewood, Florida in 1925. In the summer of 1919 alone, known as the Red Summer, red for blood and red for fire, over three dozen African-American communities were destroyed. These events were and still are termed race riots a terrible and unjust term implying that the African-American people went on some kind of rampage when in truth it was they and their communities who were attacked. And then the most recent wound. Right under our civil rights noses via the war on drugs, the current era of mass incarceration began. There are more black men in prison right now than there were black men enslaved in 1860. Like the sharecroppers and prison workers of the Jim Crow era, modern prisoners also are exploited for very lucrative work and compensated at pennies per hour, if at all. Once they get out of prison, if they do, they are prevented from participation in normal civic life through the removal of their voting privileges, their rights to hold many jobs, to live in much housing, and plus all the other daily oppressions visited on any African-American. And of course, there are the attacks and killings and unjust arrests perpetrated by the police. These have been going on since the beginning of police departments, and it is only mostly because of cell phones and video cameras now that white people are more aware of their hideously unjust nature. 
although it seems clear to me that the militarization of police and a complete change of police department tactics regarding crime over the last 20 years is playing a role as well. So the consequences of slavery and its aftermath for African Americans include unemployment and underemployment, less education, less representation in political systems and structures, shorter lifespans, more ill health, greater poverty, disproportionate incarceration, among many others. These negative consequences of slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration are amply documented and indisputable. Don't even try to argue with me about this stuff, because I'm not going to listen to you. The facts are there, and I know y'all mostly wouldn't. And these inequities are not the result of any inherent flaw or lack in African-American people, though that has been said over and over. These conditions are the direct result of the treatment of African-Americans by their own country, its government and citizens. Now, some people believe, and they're wrong, that African-American people today have equal opportunity and a level playing field in all areas of American life. I hope it's obvious that that's not true. But if that were the case, then it might seem fair that future benefits to African-Americans should come only from their own efforts, right? If everything is all fair and equal, then you deserve what you earn. However, current conditions of life for African-American people remain hideously unequal. And there is no way, even if everything changed for the better tomorrow with my magic wand, that fairness would be possible going forward because of the present unequal status. If you start from way behind, even if the rules change for the better, you will never catch up. There will still not be equality. It's also important to note that the crimes against African Americans, while always literally committed by individuals, were supported completely by an array of government, legal, and other systems at the local, state, and national level. So the individuals responsible often were acting in systemic roles and at the system's demand. People such elected officials, government workers, teachers, and law enforcement officers. And, this is very important, our current government and systems of society are the direct continuation of the government and systems operating when the crimes of slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration were committed. So we can't disassociate ourselves from them. Once we acknowledge the truth of all of this, we are bound by our commitment to justice and fairness to repair the injustice. As Unitarian Universalists, I think we are particularly called to right the wrongs against African Americans by our principles, that we affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, that we affirm and promote justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, and that we affirm and promote the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. And most of all, because as Unitarian Universalists, we rest our faith in the lap of love. We are committed to side with love, as our campaign says, in all situations. The love side is always obvious. It is the side of nonviolence and compassion and justice in every circumstance.
Now, of course, we as a nation cannot go back and undo or change the course of the past. What is history is history. But we all have control over the present and ongoing injustice and in shaping the future. And this leads to the second issue of reparations, which is, if we accept that efforts must be made to repair and restore the wrongs of the past and present committed against African Americans, if we want to ensure that these wrongs will cause less harm in the future, what is it that we need to do? What can we do? What would reparations look like in this context? So there have been many different kinds of reparations discussed over the last 40 years, and mostly that discussion has been about monetary compensation to African-American individuals. And it is this notion of monetary compensation to individuals that has aroused most of the negative reaction from the non-African-American members of the U.S. society, white people and others. This concept of reparations has also gotten most of the publicity in media. People assume that's just what reparations is. Most people assume it's the only form reparations can take. But that's not true. Most of those supporting reparations argue that this is not a viable or useful approach. As our former UUA president, Bill Singford, said to a small group of us when he visited uh, my church in Richmond in February of 2002, the minute the discussion focuses on compensation to individuals, we have lost the moral high ground. He said the minute the discussion focuses on compensation to individuals, we have lost the moral high ground. But I'll say now and I'll say later that reparations done rightly will cost a lot of money. It's not about avoiding paying money, and it should cost a lot of money. So giving money to individuals doesn't work for several reasons. First, how would you even define the individuals to do this with, affected by slavery and its consequences? You might end up doing something goofy by asking people to document their slave ancestry. And because enslaved people were property, complete vital records were not kept, yet another degrading aspect of slavery. Requiring such documentation for reparations would only compound the wrong done by the initial denial of full human status. But there's really a bigger problem in naming the issue as a purely economic one at all is if any sum of money given to individuals could compensate truly for wrongs given and received collectively. There's also the risk that once the checks are written, society would wash its hands of the problem of racism, saying, we're done with that, we paid, we don't need to do anything else. What approaches could be better? And a good model that serious thinkers about reparations propose is that of restorative justice. Restorative justice is a systematic response to wrongdoing that emphasizes healing the wounds of those wronged, the <coughs> wounds of the offenders, and the wounds of the communities that have been caused or revealed by the criminal behavior, in this case, slavery and its consequences. Practices and programs reflecting restorative purposes respond to injustice by identifying and taking steps to repair harm involving all stakeholders. Restorative justice transforms the traditional relationship between individuals, communities, and their governments in responding to injustice. 
A central restorative idea regarding reparations is that we have all suffered from racism and the crimes of slavery and its aftermath, that it is not a problem for African Americans alone, but for all of us in some way as citizens of this country. Now, don't for a moment think I'm implying that white people have suffered the same way from slavery and its consequences as African-American people have, in no way, to no extent. But we white people have suffered nonetheless, and I attribute to Paul Kivel, the author of Uprooting Racism, this unpacking of the suffering that slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration have brought to white people. As Kivel notes, White people have been given a distorted and inaccurate picture of history and politics because the truth about slavery and its aftermath has never been told. It's been denied, distorted, and downplayed. The contributions of African Americans have been denied and suppressed, and the role of whites has been portrayed in a sanitized and non-critical manner in our history. For those of us who are white, we have lost the genuine presence of African Americans in our community, schools, and relationships, for the most part, for most of us. We have been given a false sense of superiority, and our experiences are distorted, limited, and less rich the more they are exclusively or mostly white. We may have lost family members, friends, and other relationships because of disagreements, fights, and tensions over race. And at the same time, we have lost the opportunity for deep and rich relationships with African-American people because the consequences of slavery and its aftermath make those relationships very difficult to sustain. <laughs> Our feelings of guilt, shame, embarrassment, and inadequacy about slavery and Jim Crow and mass incarceration lower our sense of self-worth. And because the consequences of slavery make a mockery of our ideals of democracy, justice, and equality, this can lead us to be cynical and pessimistic about human integrity and our future, producing apathy, blame, despair, denial. These wounds are real. White people and others suffer from them every day. They corrode our souls and spirits. And we will continue to suffer from them until we have made reparations and restored justice. So, what might restorative justice efforts look like in response to slavery and reparations? A restorative justice approach to reparations would begin with acknowledging the fact of slavery and all its consequences to the present day. This is about affirming the reality of the injustice, a reality that has been denied for so long and is still denied. A useful second step would be an apology from our national government for slavery and its consequences. That won't cost a penny. This is about taking collective responsibility for injustice. Some faith Traditions have offered such apologies. Some educational and governmental institutions have made an effort to learn to what degree the labor and creativity of enslaved or oppressed African Americans made their institutions possible. This is like universities finding out that their whole campus was built by enslaved people. And we could do much, much more along those lines. Another step would be public education to ensure that all people understand the true character of African Americans as enslaved people and since slavery. 
Much of the conventional so-called knowledge about enslaved people and the history, nature, and character of African Americans has been distorted and false because these narratives were developed to justify slavery and segregation. One of the things that reparationists have called for for years is a national museum, and now we have it, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. I have not yet seen it. I really want to go there. And there are other museums elsewhere in the country, too. So there should also be steps to ensure that the continuing and ongoing effects of slavery and its consequences are reduced as rapidly as possible. These could be major initiatives benefiting African Americans generally in education, employment, housing, and other areas of public life, of which things like affirmative action are only the tip of the iceberg. Some people have proposed a national trust fund for capital for investment in African American education, health, and economic development. These would definitely include payments to groups, organizations, and institutions, as well as payments to individuals in the form of scholarships or business grants. Another key ingredient of a restorative justice approach is forgiveness. Forgiveness on the part of African Americans. Reparations cannot be about punishment and revenge. Those the, the, these are entirely and understandable and justifiable desires. But we can't stay there. And white people must forgive themselves. True racial reconciliation must be part of the justice picture, as hard as that will be for everyone. So we are an intelligent and resourceful nation. We still are, underneath all of the current stuff. We can figure this out. We helped rebuild entire nations after World War I and II. We have almost unlimited resources at all levels. There's nothing we cannot do if we set our minds and hearts to it. The creative opportunities here are enormous. And we don't have to invent all of this from scratch. A number of countries, including South Africa, Australia, and Canada, have gone through significant reconciliation and reparations processes with their oppressed and or indigenous citizens. I also want to look at the most common arguments against reparations so that I may destroy them for you. (laughs) The most common rejection of the idea of reparations is based on those arguments, you know, the stuff that I said when I was 15 about the issue being over long ago, therefore we're not responsible today. Some white and other people say that they should not be held responsible for slavery and its aftermath because they weren't alive then and therefore had nothing to do with it. Variations on this theme are for non-African American individuals to say that their families came to this country after the time of slavery or that they themselves are members of groups that have been oppressed. In both cases, these situations are seen as excluding them from the need to make reparations. And a related idea to this is to suggest that the government of the past was operating within the legal and cultural framework of the time. Therefore, our government today should not and cannot take responsibility for then legal actions. 
I said this before, I'll say it again. It is a bedrock principle of our legal and constitutional system that our government has been continuous since its inception. Our government today is the same government we began in 1776. Therefore, we cannot say that our government today is not responsible for government actions in the past because it's the same freaking government. Those claims of lack of individual responsibility due to a personal or family history of non-involvement in the impression of African Americans tend to stem from a view of reparations as simply a monetary or other type of payoff to individuals, kind of a one-way gotcha for the guilty. Of course it is true that no one alive today participated in creating or maintaining the original conditions of slavery. And that is a mercy and blessing for us, a mercy and a blessing, because it frees us from any personal sense we might have of guilt and blame, which are not useful. Rather, we white people should frame the issue as one of human rights and restorative justice. We acknowledge the racism done, the damage done by racism to all people, including our white selves. Then, if you go that way, it opens up the possibility of gratitude for reparations as an opportunity to make things right, an opportunity to live up to our sense of who we are as a nation. Making all kinds of reparations would be a blessing in our white lives. If someone said to me, you know, Cindy, would you and everybody else be willing to write a check you know, for $5,000, and then this would all be over and done with, and everyone would feel great, I'd save as long as it took to write that check. Oh, man, that would, that would be, wow. Sadly, it is not that easy. And others have said about reparations, why only African Americans? Others can rightfully claim membership in groups that have been system, systematically oppressed by our government and institutions. Why not Native Americans? Why not the descendants of Chinese and Irish immigrants? Why not women? Framing the reparations issue as one of human rights and restorative justice opens up the possibility of connecting the oppression of slavery and its aftermath with other forms of oppression. That is what intersectionality is all about, of understanding that intersectionality. It opens up the opportunity to ensure the humanity and dignity of all people in the U.S. If reparations take other forms than payments to individuals, then opportunities multiply to improve the conditions of dignity for all, to restore all those who have been oppressed. And as I said, whatever is done, it will cost money, lots of it, and it should. When Tom told you the story of Greenwood earlier, he said that it had a UU connection. The editor of the Tulsa Tribune, the person who wrote the false story and the editorial proposing lynching, was a man named Richard Lloyd James, Lloyd Jones. He was a Unitarian and the founder of Tulsa's All Souls Unitarian Church. His home in Tulsa was designed by his first cousin, Frank Lloyd Wright. Richard's father, Jenkin Lloyd Jones, was one of the greatest Unitarian ministers of the late 19th century, a radical socialist, social justice advocate, and missionary church builder on what was then the Western frontier. 
Richard's descendants attend the All Souls congregation today. In part because of this connection, in 2001, the Unitarian Universalist Association agreed to participate and did participate substantially in a Tulsa-based fund to make annual payments to the 118 living survivors of the destruction of Greenwood. That was a restorative reparations action, and there are many more that could be made. A few years ago, I read an excellent book that I recommend to you on reconciliation and forgiveness. It's titled, A Human Being Died That Night, A South African Story of Forgiveness, by Pumla Gobodo Madikizela. Dr. Madikizela is a South African clinical psychologist who served on South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Over the course of some months, she also interviewed, in prison, Eugene de Kock, the commanding officer of South Africa's state-sanctioned death squads against African people, black African people. In the course of her interviews with him, she came to believe that he had developed genuine remorse for his crimes against individuals and the nation, and she also developed an empathetic and compassionate response to him. Speaking from the viewpoint of one who has suffered and witnessed oppression directly, and from her variety of experiences with de Kock and the Truth and Reconciliation question, Commission, Dr. Madikizela raises critical questions for the countries such as the U.S. who have systematically impressed entire segments of their population. She writes, If showing compassion to our enemies is something that our bodies recoil from, what should our attitude be to their cries for mercy, the cries that tell us their hearts are breaking? and that they are willing to renounce the past and their role in it. How do we transcend hate when the goal really is to, form, is to transform human relationships in a society with a past marked by violent conflict between groups? This question may be irrelevant for people who do not have to live as a society with their former enemies. But for those whose lives are intertwined with the lives of those who have grossly violated human rights, who sometimes have to live with neighbors as them, with them, ignoring these questions is not an option. <coughs> and it's absolutely no different here in the U.S. This question of transcending hate cannot be ignored as long as the injustice continues. So I suggest to you that making reparations to African-American people for slavery and its consequences is one way to begin to transcend that hatred, that sorrow, and that pain. So I urge you to begin a careful and thoughtful examination of the case for reparations. I am convinced that they are an essential part of healing the wounds left by slavery and all of its consequences on our nation and in each one of us. I am certain that as Unitarian Universalists, as justice-loving people, we are called to engage in this work. And this work is really not work for our heads. It is work for our hearts, mostly. The heart that cries for mercy. 
the hearts that break for injustice is given, the hearts that are willing to know the pain of the past and the present and seek healing for it. So may it be. Amen. Blessed be.